No, what are we doing? We're just going to go for it? <laughs> okay. It must be a very important share today because we're having so much grief in getting this going. So with no further ado, let's get right into it. Today we're going to learn about the Queen's Gambit. Esther has just successfully eliminated the greatest enemy of the Jewish people. His name is Haman. It was no simple matter. This was not a given at all. Now we know this because we've learned it over the last couple of episodes. You see how brilliant Esther was. You see how faithful she was. And most importantly, you saw how miraculously things went. The eighth chapter of Megillus Esther opens with the post-mortem, the aftermath of Haman's hanging. By Yom Hahu, on that very day, on that very day, Nasan HaMelech HaChashveresh LaEster HaMalka, the king Achashverosh gives to the queen, who is Esther, at Beit Haman Tzorer HaYehudim, the house of Haman. He, of course, is the adversary, the enemy of the Jews. Umordechai Bolofne HaMelech. And Mordechai shows up, he comes before the king. Why does Mordechai come before the king? Ki higida Esther mohula. Because Esther has revealed what he, Mordechai, is to her, Queen Esther. This is a verse that really demands some more attention. There are so many superfluous words and details, it seems. I mean, from the very start, once Haman had been hanged, the king decides to bestow more favors upon Esther. Okay, that's nice. Whether or not this should have been a new chapter or not is irrelevant. Many times we've talked about the notion that the chapters in the Hebrew Bible are not of a Jewish source. And they were artificially imposed by people who did not speak Hebrew and certainly did not know the deeper meaning of the Hebrew Scriptures. So it matters not that this is the beginning of a chapter. That's only for station identification. It's because the Gutenberg Press began pumping out books, first in Latin, then in Hebrew, using the same chapter and verse. And then there was cross-references that quickly crept into various versions, various books and various manuscripts that had been printed. Okay, so we stuck with those. I'm not going to talk about the fact that why does this begin a new chapter? I don't know that it does even. What is relevant, what is meaningful is that the Torah links the beginning of the 8th chapter as we have it, verse 1, I'm saying that for station identification only, the Torah links this to the hanging of Haman and the respite that was subsequently engendered. The king said, hang him. They hung Haman on the gallows or the gibbet, and the king's fury abated. By Yom Ahu, on that very day, 
King Achashverosh gave Queen Esther the house of Haman. So here are some questions. And if it wouldn't be by Yom Ahu, and if it would be Lemacharata the next day, or the next week? In Gemara syntax, of what virtue, of what value, what message is being conveyed if it happened today or tomorrow? At some point, there was a transfer of property. You know, if you think about it, it is likely that there was a legal transfer, like a transfer of deeds. And anybody who's in the real estate business knows that a transfer of property or ownership is not a simple thing. You got to register the property, lawyers are involved, a new deed has to be written up. Why was it so important that on the very day Haman was hung, on that very same day, the transfer of property was effectuated? I think that's one fair question to ask. Interestingly, Rashi doesn't comment. Because on a level of pshat, it is what it is. That's, that's what happened. But on a level of drush, from a perspective of homily, we ask the question, what deeper message? Not what does it mean. We know what it means. On that day, the property was transferred. Why was it that day? And why is it important for us to know that it was that day? Now suppose we would take out the words Ahasuerus and Esther and we would just write by Yomahu on that day Natan HaMelech Lehamalka the king gave to the queen. Nobody would say hmm, king I wonder who that is. And to which queen? I mean the king and queen as we have been reading of them for quite a while now, are Esther and Achashverosh, respectively. So why does the Torah have to identify Hamelech Achashverosh le Esther Hamalka, the king, who is Achashverosh, gives to Esther, who is the queen? And it doesn't say Hamelech Achashverosh le Hamalka Esther, but Hamelech Achashverosh, the king Achashverosh, to the Esther, who is the queen? Just ask him. Now it says at Beit Haman, it says he gave the house of Haman. But very interestingly, the Targum, not the Targum Sheni, not the secondary Targum, but the primary Targum, says that he gave Beta the Haman, who is Me'ika, Me'iki Hudoi, the one who torments or persecutes the Jews. The Yos Enoshe Beisei, he gives over the household, the people, and he gives over all of his possessions and all of his residuals. So if it doesn't only mean the house of Haman, why does it say the house of Haman? Why doesn't it say it's called Kesef? Why doesn't it say all the money? What's the emphasis on the house specifically? Haman was a very wealthy man. Our sages tell us that he was in wealth second to Ahasuerus himself. So the king was the top, so to speak, holder of wealth or residuals. And the number two man in the Persian Forbes, the number two man is Haman. Now, Haman lived in a house, 
I'm sure in the capital city of Shushan or Susa, and he likely had many other residences. He probably had a, a seaside residence, what we call in Ontario vernacular, a cottage or cottages somewhere, a retreat. He probably had a few condos in Miami. I mean, he, he was a, a wealthy, well-endowed individual. So why do we have to emphasize that it was the home that was transferred? Now, we know that Haman is Tzayr HaYehudim. We know that he is the adversary, the enemy, the tormentor, the persecutor of the Jewish people. Why would the Megillah have to emphasize the house of Haman, who is Tzorer HaYehudim? There is only one Haman in this entire book. And he always sings the same tune. And a final question that I think is fair to ask is why does this verse, which is, the verses are, in fact, of Hebraic and Torah tradition, why does the verse conflate two things? On that day, Ahasuerus transferred Haman's property, Mordechai, and Mordechai came before the king. Now, for the fact that we have the U-Mordechai, which is translated as an and Mordechai, Number one, we know that this happened by Yomahu, because everything in verse one happens by Yomahu. Number two, we know that somehow the beginning of the verse and the second part of the verse are linked. What's the connection between the transfer of property and Mordechai's arrival in the palace or presenting himself before the king? Oh, by the way, it's because... Because Esther told Ahasuerosh what he is. So there's a lot of things that are saying, if you will, Darsheni, expound upon me, investigate, look more deeply. There are secrets waiting to be told. So let's take it from the top. Bayom Hahu, on that day, what is being told to us? with the emphasis of the day. I don't know if this is in a particular order, but I'm going to begin by sharing with you the commentary of the Alkabats, known as the Manot HaLevi, the portion of the Levi, of the Levite, on the Megillah of Esther. Think back. Think back to the story that's unfolded up until this point. You'll remember there was a lot of fury, a lot of anger on the king's part. You probably also remember that there was a good deal of suspicion. Ahasuerus was very, very suspicious. Esther seems too close to Haman. He invited her. Just them. And Ahasuerus, was there some kind of bid for power? Ahasuerus's wheels were turning. And of course, it's exactly what Esther wanted Ahasuerus to be thinking. And she wanted to create, as we've learned, the perfect storm. Now, Ahasuerus might think to himself, Esther sees what happened to Haman. 
I wonder if she's concerned that my next maniacal tirade is going to target her. So the Monas Halevi says, Hamelech, Hamelech, the person with the power. Which person with the power? Hamelech Achashverosh, the king who is Achashverosh. Yeah, that's the guy who's prone to killing his wives. That's the fellow who flies into rages and fits and does all kinds of, hmm, let's just say, extraordinary things without thinking twice. Now, says Achashverosh, I bet you Esther is really worried and concerned. I bet you, I bet you she's thinking, what's next? So Achashverosh set out to assuage, to calm, to mollify, and really to convince Esther that he loves her and everything is fine. Shema titztayer Esther, lest Esther think. Shachashverosh koes aleha, that Achashverosh is angry at her. Why would he be angry? <laughs> he invited Haman. She gave so much attention, lavished on Haman. She seemed to be displaying so much affection and admiration for him. Boha Melech. So this was Achashverosh's thoughts. And as the king, he came. He said, My dear beloved Esther, perish these thoughts. Don't even entertain them. You must know. I know you, Esther. I know that you are Esther. I know you're my beloved wife. I know that you care for me and worry about me. I know it's not about you. I know this. Now I understand why you made these parties. I know you, you wanted me to see through the prime minister and my eyes were blinded and I couldn't see through him and I, and I was taken in by him and, and, and he, I was bewitched by him. But now I know why you did this. You wanted to open my eyes and I'm so grateful and I appreciate it. So this explains to us why it was very important for Achashverosh to get this done as soon as possible. I mean, Achashverosh is a despotic individual. Maybe he's even a bit of a narcissist. But he still understands other people's feelings. He, he recognizes full well that Esther might actually be filled with fear. He doesn't want that. So on that very day, he takes the pains, makes the effort to demonstrate to Esther that he's not angry at her at all. Esther takes note. And so what's her next move? Her next move is now to introduce Mordechai. Why? Well, as the Ma'amloi says, Esther acted with tremendous wisdom and restraint. When she first made her request, she didn't really ask that Achashverosh rescind the decree against the nation. She said, give me my life. She asked for herself. She said, I am a target. And Achashverosh said, my beloved wife is a target, slated for extermination. And now Esther introduces Mordechai. She didn't ask for Mordechai's life initially. She asked for her life. Now she introduces Mordechai. She doesn't ask actually 
Rather, as the Maimer Mordechai says in Avram Galiko, he says, Rak Gilsa Shemordechai Krova. She only revealed to Achashverosh, Mordechai is not just an acquaintance or a friend or somebody I admire. We're, we're actually related. As the Ibn Ezra says, Mahula, what he was to her, Shehudayda, that he was her uncle. Or as Rashi puts it, because there's a dispute whether they were an uncle and niece or cousins, Echu Karevla, how he and she are kinspeople, family, relatives. Others maintain that there's also an emphasis here on how he had adopted her when she was an orphan girl, how she had raised her, provided for her. So Esther is conveying to Achashverosh, Mordechai is a very important person to me. But she doesn't ask for anything. I suppose this is what you call in English the power of suggestion. The power of suggestion. She suggests. She emphasizes. She highlights. She speaks about Mordechai as being her relative. And she just introduces Mordechai. She brings Mordechai before the king. Now, of course, Haman is going to be extremely, pardon me, Achashverosh, is extremely favorably disposed to Mordechai. After all, you know, not only she is the relative of his beloved wife, not only he is the one who raised this fantastic woman that Achashverosh loves so much, if he wasn't personally familiar with Mordechai yet, now he got to meet him up front, and this is the man who saved his life. Achashverosh, the ever-scheming monarch who's worried about those out to get him, has to have some kind of appreciation for Mordechai who had his back. A fascinating suggestion is also made by the commentary known as the Yad HaMelech. Mordechai's life was now in danger. Haman was eliminated. Haman had many, many friends, many allies. They couldn't do anything to the king, but Haman's mafia could easily fit Mordechai with a brand new set of cement sneakers and send him for a walk on the rivers outside Susa. Mordechai was introduced to the king, but ultimately he was taken into the palace and afforded royal protection. And all of this has to happen by Yomahu. It has to happen by Yomahu on that day because Esther is concerned for Mordechai's welfare. Haman's enemies are not going to wait. He's Tzorah HaYehudim. He is the bitter enemy of the Jewish people until the end. Who hung Haman, as we learned yesterday, it was Mordechai. And so since Mordechai was the one who hung the enemy of the Jewish people, it now is his life that needs to be protected. This helps us appreciate the deeper messaging in Bayomahu and Hamelech, who is Achashverosh. It's not just what the king did. It's that this is the king Achashverosh. Our commentaries also note that it was 
the custom at the time that the king would sequester the residuals, the properties, and the possessions of a person who was executed by royal edict. So, by law, everything had automatically reverted to the king's coffers. It had automatically, by law, become part of Ahasuerus's residuals. But Ahasuerus doesn't need this. He wants to use these very new properties and new possessions as an opportunity to convey to Esther how much he loves her, as we said. So why does it say Beit Haman? Rabbeinu Moshe Alshech tells us that in Torah syntax, Ho'isha nekret bayit. One's wife is euphemistically referred to as one's home. And as such, it is the home, the home of Haman, not just the possessions, meaning his wife and his children. What you call in perhaps modern syntax, his household that was handed off to Esther. And he was a Tzorer HaYehudim. Haman was dead, but his ideas weren't. In fact, his wife was a bigger anti-Semite, or at least on par. It was she who had given the advice that he go after Mordechai and have him killed immediately. If Zeresh sticks around, Esther's life is in danger, Mordechai's life is in danger. In fact, the entire nation of Israel is imperiled. Esther does what must be done to protect innocent lives. Rabbeinu Moshe Alshech suggests that there is another subtle message that's being conveyed to us. And it has a lot to do with the divine measure of retribution, which is referred to as Mida Keneged Mida. God responds in like fashion, recompensing in accordance with evil intentions. What did Achashverosh allow himself to, well, kind of get involved with by Haman's urging? By Haman's urging and by Haman's design, the people would not only be subjugated, exiled, or sold, the people would be killed. Now, when you have a target on your back, and everybody knows that you're about to be killed, what value does life have in the eyes of would-be murderers or for the person themselves? You worry, you live with fear and anxiety and trepidation. Haman sought to fill the hearts of the Jewish people with a sense of dread, with a sickening sense that their life was in balance. And at any moment, an anti-Semite 
could take out a Jew. He wouldn't be persecuted. After all, this entire nation was slated for genocide. So he wasn't only going to be the mass murderer of Am Yisrael, it was also going to be inflicting emotional and psychological torture. Hashem arranges that Haman should spend his last earthly moments with that exact kind of emotional and psychological torture. The Alshach says, Bayom Hahu doesn't necessarily mean after the hanging of Haman. It means on the very day Haman was going to be hung. Haman would see before his death how all of his possessions and his home were sequestered by the royal officers, by the king, and given to his enemies, to Esther. Haman wanted to have Mordechai hanging, if you will, in his home. So the Maimon Mordechai says, Haman who wanted to have Mordechai hang in his home was hung in Mordechai's home. Because Esther hands the reins to Mordechai, as we'll soon see. So this is what you could call poetic justice. Exactly what Haman had sought to bring upon others, Hashem brought upon him. We now have an appreciation of why it says Bayomahu. We understand why Esther and Achashverosh's names are mentioned. This is not simply a natural transfer of property or ownership or wealth or residuals, but it has a lot to do with the personalities of Achashverosh and Esther. It has everything to do with the fact that Haman was Tzorer HaYehudim. And the kings being introduced to Mordechai on that very day tells a critical part of the story. Namely, Haman is gone, but his nefarious ideas still live on. The danger has not yet been averted. Esther's life is secure. Even Mordechai's life is now protected. But the nation of Israel, who is slated for genocide, still finds itself in that original predicament. That's a very important piece of the story because it will help us understand what transpires in the next verse and then that will lead us into the next part of the story, aptly entitled, The Queen's Gambit. She's won round one. Now, she risks it all in order to achieve what we will call full victory. The al also adds,
Achashverosh understood the fears and anxieties of Esther. He knew that she'd still be concerned. And so he took initiative to weaken the standing of Haman. What would be more damning for Haman and Haman's enemies who haven't yet been eliminated, but to see his house, not in the royal coffers, but rather in the jurisdiction of Esther, the Jewish queen. And although we can now see that Esther and Mordechai are saved, and although Achashverosh has taken strident action to weaken the standing of Haman, the danger has not yet passed. The second verse informs us that Achashverosh took further action, action which on the surface seems extremely edifying in leading towards what we will call not only the betterment, but a full solution, an end of the problem. The king removes his ring, which he had retrieved from Haman. He gives it to Mordechai. So the king gives Mordechai a ring. Vatosem Esther es Mordechai, obeys Haman. Esther gives Mordechai a palace. Now surely you picked up on the nuance of the scripture. When the king gives a ring, the Hebrew is vayitno, he gave it. When Esther gives the palace, it says vatosem, she placed she placed Mordechai, al-beit She placed Mordechai over the house. It doesn't say she gave the house. Why? And why is it that we talk so much about a ring? Who cares? So Mordechai got a Super Bowl ring, big deal. He just got an enormous amount of wealth. It's a piece of jewelry really make such a big difference? Well, <laughs> to be sure, it's not really a piece of jewelry. As we learned in previous classes, this ring represents the power of governance itself. We've already explained in great detail that Achashverosh set into motion a new etiquette, if you will, where the Mishnah Lamelech, where the Viceroy, will obtain the royal signet ring. This is how decrees are essentially enacted or signed into law. Haman was the one who had power vested in his hands from the moment that Achashverosh ringed him. Now Achashverosh retrieves the ring from Haman, who is hanging from a gibbet. And that ring is passed, ultimately, onto Mordechai. The Yad HaMelech tells us that although there is precedent for this, with another Jewish viceroy, from the same family, 
Mordechai and Esther are descended from Binyamin. Binyamin's older brother is Yosef. Yosef was appointed as viceroy in Egypt, the superpower of the day. And the Pharaoh gave Yosef his ring. Now, that's not to say that it had been the custom in all governments and monarchies that the ring or the ability to legislate laws and edicts was necessarily always in the hand of the prime minister. But there is a stunning corollary between the last Jewish viceroy, who's Joseph, and the next Jewish viceroy of a foreign government, who is Mordechai. The Gemara tells us that the passing of the ring from Ahasuerosh to Haman achieved more than all the prophets and the propheticists. Because when they realized that a man like Haman was in charge, it shook them to the core. And it induced a wave of renewal and return. They performed tshuva. Now, at this point, says the Yad Melech, the ring which had been given to Haman, so that tshuva might be done, had already been achieved. Hashem had mercy on them. And so Hashem arranges that the ring is removed from the hands of Haman and given to a Mishnah Lamelech Chodosh, to a new prime minister. We don't know who the prime minister was. But the Yad HaMelech assumes that Mordechai was not appointed prime minister overnight. And that at a later point, when the king met Mordechai and was impressed with him, and got to know him in a very meaningful way, that at that point, he handed the ring to Mordechai, effectively making him the new prime minister or viceroy. Which means that verse 2 is not Bayomahu. Verse 1 is Bayomahu. On that day, Mordechai was taken into the palace. On that day, Haman's residuals were sequestered and immediately transferred. On that day, Esther's position was solidified. And Mordechai rose significantly, but not to position of viceroy. Verse 2 is at a later time. Not much later, but at then the resultant actions taken saw the king ring Mordechai and Esther place him over the residuals or the, the properties, the possessions of Haman. So why is it that it says Ahasuerus gives the ring? But it's not really a gift because Ahasuerus didn't abdicate. And yet the word give is used as if he is given it to Mordechai, but it's, have a, it's got a leash attached. <laughs> it's not as if Mordechai has been made the new king. And yet... When Esther gives the palace of Haman, it only says that he was placed over this. 
So the Manas Halevi explains it in a very beautiful way. Esther is very much beloved by the king at this point. And yet, Esther knows her position is precarious. A precarious position necessarily means that she has to watch every step she makes. The king has gone and generously given Esther a big gift. And what does she do? She gives it away. That wouldn't look right. So Esther couldn't do that. If she had transferred title, it would become known. Achashverosh might be offended. The Manasalevi says, Choshva, she thought, Ein midat that won't be the decent and appropriate thing to do. Litain matna tamelech, to give the gift of the king to Mordechai. How would you feel? You buy a person you love a gift, and they gave it to somebody else. So, well, you gave it to me. It was mine. I can give it to whoever I want. Of course, you could give it to whoever you want, but that's offensive. And therefore, she placed Mordechai over the home. Here, Esther demonstrates in a very clear way that she trusts Mordechai implicitly. That's important for Achashverosh to take note of. The level of trust makes a big difference. For all practical purposes, that's Mordechai's home. Nobody questions what he does. He has really free reign. Esther doesn't say, double check with me before you do anything crazy. She says, it's all yours. But in name, she appointed Mordechai over it. It's interesting to note that according to the Medrash Lekach Tov, Mordechai ends up donating all of the funding to build the second base Migdash. He keeps not one red cent for himself. So Esther effectively does give it to him, but the scripture takes care to couch that in the syntax of placing him at the helm rather than giving the gift away. The Medrash tells us that in the blessings that our father Jacob, Yaakov Avinu, gave Binyamin in the last hour of his life, he said to Binyamin, Ze'ev Yitreif, a praying wolf, Baboiker Yoichal Ad, In the morning, he eats his spoils. And then in the evening, divides the spoils up. So our rabbis tell us that this refers to Mordechai and Esther, great-grandchildren of Binyamin. But specifically, Baboker Yochal Ad refers to the day of. The division of the spoils. That's the way Esther divided this. By giving it to Mordechai, that's that's, if you will, proverbially speaking, towards evening on a different day. Esther received it on the day of, and at a later point, at a later period, passes it on to Mordechai, but does so in a very careful and politically correct way. She doesn't want to offend Haman in any way, shape, uh, in any way, shape or form. Now, there is a, a, an issue here. 
a big question about the passing on of, of this home and Mordechai being appointed over the home. And of course, as the Medrash says, him donating it. And the, the question is that Haman is an Amalekite. He is Ha'agagi, a direct patrilineal descendant of Agag, the king of Amalek, who was spared, unfortunately, by Mordechai and Esther's ancestor, Shaul, King Saul. And the Torah tells us that we're not allowed to benefit from the possessions of Amalek. So the big question here is, did Mordechai and Esther violate the Torah by accepting this gift and by taking hold of it? So if you were to say Esther got it, what was she supposed to do? But here she transfers it to Mordechai. And the Medrash tells us that Mordechai gives it to the base on Migdash. The famous 19th century sage, pardon me, 20th century sage, Rabbi Ruchim Perlov, in his commentary on the Sefer HaMitzvah of Sadiq Gohan, he says that um, there might be a number of possibilities, ways to answer this question. He says, first of all, it's the opinion of Nachmanides that the responsibility to eradicate a Amalek rests not on the individual, but rather on the Jewish monarchy. It was Saul's responsibility, and therefore the laws of the destruction of Amalek are binding upon Shaul HaMelech, but not in effect with regard to Esther as an individual. For whilst she was a sovereign, a royal, she was a Persian queen, not a Jewish queen. And Mordechai may have been a viceroy or a prime minister, but of Persia, not of Israel. And as such, the mitzvah would not apply to them. Esther would have been exempt. Another way to view this, he suggests, is when somebody is killed by the king, their property immediately, instantaneously, is absorbed by the jurisdiction of the king. And as such, it wasn't as if this was an Amalek possession that was then sequestered or taken by Esther. It was automatically included by law in the residuals of the royal coffers of the king, and as such, it's not really the possession of a mullik at all. It was, if you will, cleansed through the ownership of Ahasuerush, of the monarch. So when Esther receives Haman's house, it's not the home of Haman, but rather of Ahasuerush's. Lastly, in his commentary to the Sefer HaMitzvah of Sadiqon, he suggests that it's possible that Haman was not really an Amalekite. There is such an opinion that's found in the Jerusalem Talmud, according to the Talmud Yerushalmi, in Mesechet Yevamot, the opinion advanced is that he is ultimately not a technical descendant of Amalek. In a footnote in one of the Rebbesichas, he argues that all of these solutions are very difficult to accept. The first solution that it's um, a monocarchal responsibility and not the obligation of individual flies in the face of the way we perform this mitzvah of Zohar. In fact, this coming Shabbat is Parshat Zohar and it's a mitzvah for us to remember Amalek and act on that. Maimonides clearly says that it's a mitzvah that's binding upon all. To say that this home no longer was identified with Haman when the scripture itself calls it Beit Haman Tzorah Yehudim, 
is unwieldy. It doesn't really jibe with the literal reading of the verse. And lastly, on a literal level, Haman is called Ha'agogi. The Targum Sheni traces the, gen the genealogy directly back to Agag. And that is the majority opinion. So to explain a very important detail in the story of the Megillah according to a minority opinion is again extremely unwieldy. So the Rebbe suggests that there's a problem with all three of these answers. And therefore, the Rebbe has a, a radical new solution to this problem. He says it's true that the Torah ordains that the animals of Amalek have to be killed as well. And I'm not asking you to understand this. I don't understand it either. This is in the realm of a chok, something which is beyond our rhyme and reason. The notion of the removal of, uh, elimination of Amalek and even the animals of Amalek. Now Rashi, in his commentary, Chumash Dvarim, only mentions the animals, not the property. We know Rashi is very precise with his choice of words. Essentially, there seems to be a distinction between livestock and real estate. Why draw that distinction? It seems artificial. And where's Rashi's source? The Rebbe suggests that there is a fundamental distinction between livestock and real estate. In either case, it would be necessary to assert ownership. And oftentimes, when people will buy a home, they'll renovate it. When people own animals, they brand the animals. Branding is a painful, not a comfortable experience. As such, the Rebbe says that the only way to, so to speak, repossess the animals of a Amalek would be by branding them, and that, the herding of the animal, would be prohibited by Jewish law. But property doesn't feel pain. And so, when property would be repositioned, or redirected, or rearranged, it could actually be forgotten this was once the house of Haman. Instead it became a big yeshiva, a kola, maybe a school for Jewish children. The beautiful compound was no longer seen as Hitler's mansion. Now it was seen as a source, a place for Torah and for Yiddishkeit. I'm glossing over a very, very complex issue, very briefly, because I feel it's appropriate to mention it since this is a part of the story. It's an important part of the story. From a perspective of Hasidus, the notion of the passing or transfer of this property and of these residuals represents the idea of not only iskafia or crushing evil, but rather repurposing evil, which is called in Zoharic terminology, ithapcha, transformation. So instead of destroying the house of Haman, the house of Haman now became a place of positivity. 
And that has very important undertones for how we view the challenges we face and how we should see the material world, even the parts of it that are used for a negative purpose. You know, just by means of example, there are many who view the Internet as a, a terrible place to be, filled with sewage and all kinds of toxic material. And of course, they're not wrong. There's an enormous amount of filth, pornography, hate, and twisted ideas that are available on the Internet. But hey, it's also a chance for us to study Torah together. It's also a chance for us to discover the beauty and the pageantry, the majesty, and the glory of Hashem's holy Torah, and to re-spark our own Yiddishkeit. So rather than looking at it as intrinsically a bad place, Hasidus would tell us, take Haman's house and make it Mordechai's. Take something that was used in a negative sense and repurpose it for profound positivity. Such as the deeper spiritual lesson of the sequestering of Haman's home and possession and the appointment to Mordechai as its new owner. At this point, we now have part one of Esther's goal achieved. She is safe and Mordechai is safe. However, although the problem of Haman's person has been resolved, the decree permitting genocide, annihilation of the Jewish nation still stood. Here, Esther will seek to take advantage of the favor that she has found with the king. She will seek to parlay this new position of power, this new circumstance of influence to be able to annul and avert the decree that still threatens her people. But my dear friends, do not think for a moment that this is so simple or that Esther took it for granted. If I might suggest a very important lesson, never take anything for granted. One must always continue to pray to Hashem. One must always continue to hope to heaven. Before I move into this next section, I just remember now that I did want to share with you that the Vilna Gorn fascinatingly comments that in verse 2, we see Ahasuerus undoing that which he had previously committed in a negative sense by giving Haman fame, fortune, and power, the notion of lots of money and lots of wherewithal. He gave him governance and he gave him wealth. Gidloi, he made him grand. He made Haman great. That, says the Vilna Goyen, was bemoming with money. 
Unesoi, he raised him. That was kavod, that was honor. So here we see a full reversal. Where Achashverosh gives the power to Mordechai. He gives him the ring. And Haman passes the home or the wealth onto Mordechai. In other words, verse 2 represents the full reversal of Achashverosh's missteps and misdeeds up until this point. But as mentioned, Mordechai and Esther are safe. The situation is still very, very dangerous. Verse 3. Vatosef Esther. As such, Esther cannot simply, you know, just move on, but rather Esther again comes before she speaks before the king. It's interesting to note that the verbiage that's used is vatedaber, and she speaks. And as the Monas Halevi points out, we know that dibur is lashon kosha. Dibur represents demanding, strident, tough talk. Esther comes before the king. She comes and she's going to speak in a very, very demanding way. This is a gamble. But Esther's no fool. And even though she knows that she must speak with great force and take no prisoners, she also knows that Ahasuerus remains fickle. And he has to be given a tickle. She needs to make sure that Ahasuerus will keep giving her the leeway so that she can achieve what she seeks, the full saving of Am Yisro. So she speaks before the king, but then she further, she falls before his feet. And then she weeps. She pleads with him. She speaks. She falls. She weeps. She pleads. And all of this is lahavir et ra'at haman ha'agogi. To remove the evil of haman the agagite. The eight machshavto. And to remove his scheme. The plot that he has devised, Asher Choshev This verse, once again, needs a great deal of elucidation. If verse 1 is Bayomahu on that very day, if verse 2 is maybe a day or two later, when does verse 3 happen? Because the Torah says, Vatosef. So let me begin by reminding you, that Esther behaved in a very, very smart fashion. She didn't overreach. First, she pleaded for her life. Then, by power of suggestion, allows the king to appoint Mordechai to a very, very high position. Now it's time to ask again. Why doesn't she just make the power of suggestion? Tell Achashverosh that she's Jewish. I'm glad you asked. Gersonides, Rabbeinu Levi ben Gershon says 
When you ask something of a king, you don't ask for everything right away. This is a staged process. You ask. You wait. You ask for a little more. You slowly curry favor. And you reorient the circumstances. And so the Manas HaLevi suggests that they waited for about two months. This story happens on Pesach. A month later, it's Iyar. A month later, it's Sivan. When does this happen? We actually get a date. You'll hear about it soon. The 23rd day of Sivan. So two months have elapsed. And now Esther makes her next move. What was she doing in between? Oh, Rabbeinu Avraham Megermazir says Esther was up to her old mannerism. She spent these two months in prayer, in fasting, in tshuva, in penance, in piety, pleading with Hashem. She instructed the Jewish people not to get overconfident. She said Haman may be gone, but his ideology lives on. There are many, many, many haters of the Jewish people who still feel emboldened and empowered. The king has not yet rescinded the decree, Esther said. It's not time to let your guard down. It's not time for Purim festivities yet. And so the Jewish people continue to devote themselves to tshuva, to the restoration of their soul and spirit, and to bring you about a renaissance of Jewish spirituality, of Yiddishkeit. And thus, they went from Pesach to Shavuot to the seven weeks of the Omer. They celebrated Shavuot, Zman Matan Torah Tenu. They had now reaccepted the Torah, according to the Talmud, in a way that rivaled even the acceptance of the Torah at Har Sinai, at Mount Sinai, when God originally gave it to us. And another two weeks have passed. And after all of this prayer, all of this penance, all of these good deeds, Esther feels now, at this point, comfortable enough to approach the king yet again. The commentary known as Adivri Esther suggests that Esther did hope the power of suggestion would do its part. She and Mordechai waited. The rest of Nisan, the whole of Ir. In their minds, they thought, once we reach Shavuot, Hashem will ordain it, that the king will get it and understand that the danger is still here. But he didn't. Ahasuerus wasn't getting the hint. The power of suggestion was, it seems, still far too vague. And so now, by the 23rd day of Sivan, with most of the month having gone by, just one week left to the month of Matan Torah, Esther says, we have no choice. Without making a direct ask, nothing's going to happen. Now, 
before we lose the month of Sivan, the month of Matan Torah, now is the time for us to make our move. Vatosef Esther Vatadabilifnehamelech. Esther once again spoke before the king according to the Dina Pshara. Esther was speaking before Hakodesh Baruchu. Vatosef Vatadabir. Every time you come across the word Hamelech in the Megillah, it refers to Hamelech Achashverosh. It also refers. It refers also to Melech Malchi Hamlochem Hakodesh Baruchu. And so Esther here is speaking before Hakodesh Baruchu. And she's pleading with the Almighty that he should forgive the sins, the iniquities, the shortcomings, the failings of the Jewish people. That he should wipe off and stamp out the persecution and the prosecutors. As she seeks to effect new national legislation. And this, my dear friends, was the Queen's Gambit. Would Achashverosh respond Appropriately. The Dina Pshara says very interestingly that if you look at the verses carefully, it doesn't suggest for a moment that she looked at Achashverosh. It says, Vatosef Esther Vatedaber Lifnei Hamelech. And it doesn't mention Achashverosh's name. She came before not her husband, Achashverosh, but the king of the Persian Empire. She spoke before him. She humbled herself. She wept to the point that she couldn't stand on her own, collapsing on the floor. She cried out and she said, my nation is in a great danger. Enemies threaten them on a daily basis. Their lives seem to have no value. And Esther said, if something happens to them, I will die of a broken heart. I, personally, cannot continue to exist here in the palace if my nation will be slaughtered in the streets. The Vilna Goyen makes a very interesting point in suggesting that when Esther came before the king, it says that she did a number of things. Vatidaber, she spoke. Vatipo, she fell. Vatefk, she wept. He suggests that here Esther engaged on all levels. Al-Tarebbe says in Tanya that the garments of the soul are machshava, thought, dibur, communication, and maise, actions taken. We are not the things we do. We can do things, but we are not those things. You can do bad things and you can choose to do good things. When you do something bad, it doesn't mean you are bad. It means you did a bad thing. One of the most important lessons parents have to learn very early on is never ever to tell their children, you are bad. You did something bad. Tell your child, you are good, but you did something very bad. We are not the words we use, and we can change the way we speak. When a person speaks inappropriately, it doesn't make them evil, but the words they chose 
can be extremely pernicious. And lastly, even our thoughts are not really endemic to who we are. We can choose to think about things in a positive and uplifted way or in a miserable and pessimistic way. It's a choice we make. We may be predisposed. We may have our own natural proclivities to think a certain way, but we can change the way we think. And that's why the Alter Rebbe calls them garments. Because garments can be divested. And new clothes can be worn. The Vilna Gaon interestingly notes here, that Esther engaged on a multiple, so to speak, ways, multiple levels. She spoke certain words to Achashverosh. She acted in a particular way. And finally, her heart and her mind, her heart and her mind were fully invested to the point that Ahasuerus would be able to sense the sincerity of her words. Machshava Dibirumaisa. He says Machshava refers to the notion of Vatevk, and she wept. Tears themselves are not intrinsically communicative of anything. It's not about tear ducts or moisture in the eyes. It's what it represents. You know what a person's thinking when you see them crying. Ahasuerus could see what Esther was thinking. Not what she was saying. Not what she was doing. What she was thinking. The Gra says, Bechia ein bechia ela belev. Weeping, real tears, are always heartfelt. The Zohar and the book of Ruth says, that tears are indicative of the deepest emotion. And all of this represents supplication, he says. It's all Loshen Tachnunim. And that's why the word Vatitchanen is not a particular expression, but according to his view, Vatitchanen is the overarching description of the vatdaber, vatipel, and the vatevk. Yes, she spoke stridently, but she did so with supplication. She fell to the ground, but not with an ostentatious show of emotion, but rather with a sense of heartfelt pleading. And she wept, because it really touched her. There's a beautiful story that's told about the Chafetz Chaim. The Rebbe told the story. The Tsarist authorities at the time, who were under enormous pressure from the various movements that were afoot, which eventually brought the Tsar to his knees and destroyed the Romanov house, had nothing better to do than persecute the Jews. This was what was on their mind. Not the reform, reformation of the unions, not the providing for poor people or trying to fix the economy. The Tsar was busy worried about how to assimilate the Jews. And a series of rules, laws, edicts really, had just been passed in the Duma. 
his newly or hastily put together Senate, which he really controlled. And these laws were aimed at poisoning the bloodstream of Jewish education, forcing the kind of qualifications for teachers of young children that would necessarily mean that they would be assimilated Jews. At that time, a large, large portion of Eastern Europe was under Tsar's control, including most of Lithuania. A mishlachas, a group of Jewish activists, rabbis and community leaders, went to plead the case. When they returned, they reported to the Chofetz Chaim, who lived in Lithuania and Raden, that they had failed. The Chofetz Chaim became very agitated, and he began to pound on the table. And he said, when you heard that you failed, did one of you faint, he said? And they had to admit nobody fainted. And the Chofetz Chaim said, that's why you weren't successful. Because if they would have known, if the Tsarist ministers would have seen that this touches you to the very core of your being, they would have been moved by it. Such was the pleading of Esther on that day. Words that were strident, but filled with pain and pleading. Actions that indicated that this touched Esther to her very core. And the tears she shed moved Achashverosh. Achashverosh responds. Before I talk about Achashverosh's response, I do want to zero in on what exactly Esther asked for. She asked Lahavir es roas homon. To remove the evil. The evil, Rashi says, is not the evil that was Haman. He's been gone for weeks. But that his demonic decree should not be carried out. The evil scheme, the plot that he had hatched, that was still in full sway. The plot that the Agagite, the hate filled Amalekite, had planned against the Jewish people. The Maima Mordechai says that here we emphasize Lahavir es Ra's Haman, the es Machashavto, the evil of Haman, and his plot, his thoughts. But are they not one and the same? The Maim Mordechai suggests they are not necessarily one and the same because the evil scheme refers to the decree of annihilation, whereas the plot, that refers to the campaign of defamation that Haman had conducted to convince Ahasuerus and many, many people in the population that the Jewish nation was rotten to the core. This isn't really different than what the Nazis did, Yemach Shemam. Not only did they put a plan of annihilation into action, from mass graves and ravines 
to cattle cars and crematoriums. They also defamed and delegitimized the Jewish people for years. So that in the people's minds, Jewish life was no longer viewed as human. That kind of re-education was the masterful ability of Haman. In fact, the Gemara says nobody could malign as Haman could. He was the master at characterizing us as the lowest vermin. And so even if Achashverosh would annul the decree, but the Jew hatred that Achashverosh still felt in his heart as the result of Haman's influence would linger on. And that hatred would continue to proliferate in Persian society. Am Yisrael will be saved today. But who knows what would happen tomorrow? And so Esther pleads not only not only to remove the decree of annihilation, but also the Maharal of Prague says that enormous amounts of the local population shared Haman's anti-Semitism. Esther asked the king to outlaw this kind of hateful speech and thought. And how do you do that? By making it unacceptable. By punishing those who violate it. Now we know what Esther asked. We know how she asked. Achashverus responds, Vayeshet HaMelech LaEster Esharvet HaZov. Achashverus, seeing Esther's sincerity, the way she was lying on the floor at his feet, extends the golden scepter as if permitting her to rise and to speak her mind. The Alshech says, the extending of the scepter to Esther, and then the subsequent part of the verse, Esther rises and stands before the king, says the Alshech, the extending of the scepter was indicative, a message to Esther. You have found favor in my eyes. It was, a sign of encouragement. As Rebavram Galiku emphasizes, speak without the tears. Don't be heartbroken. Make your request. We're on the same page. I'm prepared to act. So it's not just the extending of a scepter, but ultimately, Esther now has been positioned to make the request. The Yosef Lekach even suggests that Achashverosh as if gave the scepter to her. He said, you don't have to ask me. Here's my scepter. Here is the paradigm of power. Do as you please. Legislate as you will. But Esther doesn't do that. She very wisely does not exploit that expression of kindness. She doesn't utilize or seize this moment of royal largesse 
But instead, she very humbly continues to speak. And now it's not vatadaber. Now she speaks softly. And she says, vatoymer, she says, imal ha-melech toiv. If it would be good for the king. If I found favor before him. If this is appropriate. Before the king. If I am good in his eyes. Then let him write legislation. To return those letters. The schemes, the plot of Haman, the son of Hamdasah Agogi, Asher Kosav la Abbe who has written to annihilate the Jewish people, that are in all of the king's provinces. Ki uchal, for Esther says, How can I see? How can I? How can I bear? How can I see the harm that will find my people? And how can I bear to see the elimination of my birthplace, referring to her own family? In other words, Esther is not asking for herself. She knows that she will be left untouched. But she implores the king not to allow her people to be harmed. The Yosef Lekach says, We speak of the calamity that will befall my people and often the destruction of my family. The Yosef Lekach says, Esther knew that the Jewish people would never be destroyed, but they could suffer greatly. And so with faith she says, the calamity, not the destruction. No one will ever be able to destroy the Jewish people. But she knew it was possible for a family to be destroyed. And Esther said, if harm will come to Am Yisrael, if my family is destroyed, I will not be able to bear it. It'll finish me off. I will simply no longer be able to function. So Esther makes her request by asking Ahasuerus to do this. And she uses, as our sages point out, many, many terms in which she makes the request. If it's good for the king. If I find favor. If this is good for the king. All of this is, so to speak, the king. If I am good in his eyes. As the Vilna Gaon says, there are three prerequisites that will ensure the success of a request. First of all, it's got to be good for the respondent. If this is good for you. It's not about me. It's about you. The petitioner has to be like better respondent. Esther says, if, I, if I'm good to you, if I'm good for you. And the proposal itself has to be a good one. Esther prefaces her request with these three criteria. She says, I'm only asking if it's good for the king. If I, as a Petitioner, find favor in your eyes. And if the request itself is appropriate or good, well then in that case, if I'm good before the king, I will make my request. And so, she doesn't ask for Ahasuerus to stamp out the idea 
And she doesn't say, I want to do this legislation. She says, I want the king to do it. There's a beautiful story that's introduced by the Manus Alevi about Alexander of Macedonia. Our sages tell us he was once approached by a beggar and he asked for alms. And Alexander responded by giving him a town, a township. And the people said, the servants of Alexander said, Your Highness, he didn't ask for a township. He asked for a few bucks. And Alexander said, It's not about what he asked for. It's about how I give. Esther says, It's not about my request. Do this in a royal fashion. Do this as you, the king, understands. That's a whole different perspective. Esther says, if I'm good in your eyes, remember, you weren't speaking to me before, always using an interpreter, because I was a commoner. You found out I'm descended from royal lineage. Yet if my people are killed, where does that put me? I am demoted. So Esther emphasizes the idea that this is about our relationship ultimately. All the good that we have achieved is going to be undone. Esther is very specific in her request. She says, Yikosef, it's got to be written. The Maimah Mordechai says, if it wouldn't be written, if it's only going to be a verbal rule and edict, if it's not written into legislation, if it doesn't become an actual order that is signed, sealed, and delivered, it will stay the problem, it will not solve the problem. If you just make an announcement, he says, this will last for days. But when the time will come, and the decree has been hatched, on the 13th day of Adar, the people will not be safe. And therefore she says, You need to fight fire with fire. Legislation must be ruled out with new legislation. New letters have to be written. In fact, she says, Haman wrote his letters secretly. He wrote one thing to the population. He wrote something else to those involved in law enforcement and yet something else to those in the highest position of governance as we talked about many an episode ago when we discussed the details of how Haman gave the orders. So Esther says, you need to undo those orders. And by undoing those orders, you can indicate that Haman did this on his own that he had falsified his authority, that he had overreached. And the proof is that he was trying to hide something. So Lahashiv is Hasvarim, it's not going to be as if Ahasuerus is expressing any regret for what he's done, it's for retrieving that which Haman did illegally. That's not exactly true. Because Ahasuerus was no saint here. But Esther has to make the argument in a way that appeals to Ahasuerus and his twisted sense of judgment. Esther says, don't wait. I can't bear it anymore. I can't bear this. We can't push this off for another day. I can't take it. And when Ahasuerus hears the sincerity of Esther, that she can't take it, that she's pleading, that this affects her to her very core. 
Indeed, we continue now with new legislation. Esther's gambit pays off, and ultimately, she is able to manipulate, if you will, but that's a bad word in English. She's able to reposition, reorient Achashverosh, and influence the way the future is going to look. With this, we'll conclude for today. I mentioned in the outset that there was a, an important lesson that we can take in our time, and perhaps there are two. The first, you never stop davening. Even when things are getting better or looking up, we are always to continue to appeal to Hashem for His mercy. Esther didn't get comfortable. And the second, sincerity, my friends. Sincerity sells. Although we live in a world that is so rife with falsehood, in the end, if a person is sincere, it'll be noticed. If a request is made from the heart, it makes its different, it makes its impact. It can dent the darkness of a depraved Achashverosh. Because when a holy Esther pleads and begs, she gets through to the darkest of nights. And we too can be successful. We can be successful at influencing others. We can be successful at having an impact in the strangest places. Because Dvorim HaYetzim Min HaLev, words that come with sincerity and heartfelt truth, Nichnasim HaLev, are always able to enter the heart. The Rebbe would always teach us that if you're not influencing somebody, the problem isn't with them. The problem's with you. Say another chapter of Tilim. Care more. Love more. Be more sensitive. Esther was successful. With Hashem's help. Will be too. Thanks for joining. Sorry about the difficulties we had today. And I hope in Merz Hashem on the go forward that we continue to come together to study Hashem's Torah and to inspire each other. Thank you.